Alicia, please tell us about your diagnostic workup, your therapeutic approach to lower limb acute hip vein thrombosis, what will be the indications and which techniques and device do you use for catheter-directed thrombolysis, mechanical or pharmacomechanical thrombectomy, what's the role for flow-directed infusion that seems to be forgotten nowadays? Please tell, tell us something about it. Well, depends on what the patient needs. If you have a patient who comes in with a acute DVT and they've had a history of DVT, so they have chronic occlusion in their iliac vein and they have a whole leg full of fresh thrombus uh, all the way down to their popliteal or below. Um, I, I start with, of course, a good history and try to see where they've been and understand their family history as well. And I always test for factor five, factor two, MTHFR, and uh, their blood type. Mm -hmm. I always, that's part of my workup. I always measure both legs in the thigh, the calf, and the ankle. I always measure 10 centimeters above the top of the patella, 10 centimeters below the bottom of the patella, so that anytime I see that patient with their legs straight out in front of them, the place I measure will be almost the same place each time. So then I always give my patients a questionnaire for quality of life. I give them a Volalta score questionnaire. I start with all of those basic things. And then I do usually a CTA, uh, because you've taught me that that's really an important way of looking <laughs> at it. I enjoy that, but I always get an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. My ultrasound texts are very good. And I want to see what the problem is. So I want a map. I want a roadmap of ultrasound, and I get a CTA if uh, it's doable. So those are the main things that I get before I ever do a procedure on a patient. Okay? Okay. But uh, in which patient do you use? Uh, catheter-directed therapy, which one do you, do, you, do you think it's better to start with uh, flow-directed infusions? Uh, well, well, let me answer that question. If you have a... Oh, there's a Roadrunner. They're rare. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, if you have a patient come into the hospital with acute DVT and um, you suspect there's chronic DVT underneath, you have to get rid of the acute DVT. It depends on what your schedule's like. Mm -hmm. You know, you can take a patient into the cath lab if you don't have anything else going on and run a Zelante catheter with TPA and you can open up the flow and you can decide where you're going to have to stent, if you're going to stent in the iliac and uh, down lower. But what I prefer to do, I've, I've said this a long time, I use IBIS on every case because we have IBIS here. Now, I understand that IBIS is expensive and 
if it's not reimbursed in Brazil, that's not a good thing. Do you get reimbursed for that? Uh, many, 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 many times nowadays we, we have access to, to IVUS, for God's sake, yeah. So IVUS shows you on the inside how much thrombus is there, and the venogram will always deceive you. There will be, you might have a better appearance than it is, so IVUS tells you what's really there. For the most part, whenever I do a Zelante thrombectomy, I have found because I use IVUS, that there's a lot of garbage there, a lot of old clot stuck to the wall, and it didn't dissolve with two or three passes of Zelante and 10 milligrams of TPA. So now what? I put a multi-site hole catheter, and I always use an angiodynamic, um, yeah, an angiodynamic catheter, multi-site hole, a 90 centimeter in length with a 30 or 40 centimeter infusion length, and then I put TPA, 10 milligrams in a bag, 1,000 ml of normal saline, and I run that at 100 ml per hour if they have normal kidneys and normal heart function. And most of our venous patients are younger. Mm -hmm. If they're older, then maybe you have to watch how much fluid you give them. You have to watch how much contrast you give everybody. But we do uh, overnight infusion and then bring them back and look with IVUS again. And I do relatively little angioplasty if I don't need to uh, because it damages the wall. So, I mean, you have to do it with uh, a purpose. Uh, I always angioplasty in the common iliac if it's chronically occluded. But... When you do IVUS before and after angioplasty, you will note that the vein always gets smaller. It doesn't get bigger like an artery. You see, an artery, if you angioplasty, it will damage the wall in a purposeful way, and your, your lumen will become larger. If you angioplasty a vein, it, it, it often gets smaller. That's, an angioplasty of veins doesn't work as a long-term treatment. I mean, you have to put a stent in, in my experience. People who have done angioplasty and then left and come back, they always come back with it all clotted again. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stay open very well. So I would do uh, overnight TPA with an angiodynamic catheter, bring them back. I would uh, do TPA for one day or two days to make sure that I get the best results so there's good inflow. And then the last thing you do is to place your stents. And I place stents uh, from the, just uh, the confluence. And if you have a bifurcation that is shaped like an H and not like an inverted Y, mm -hmm. then I think it's very important to reconstruct the, uh, the bifurcation so that you have kissing stents that give both sides a good long-term result. Many of these patients will live another 40 or 50 years, and you need to make sure that they're left with a system that will endure and not uh, clot off the opposite leg. I think you agree with me on that. Yeah, totally agree. Patricia, in your practice, how often do you stand in percentage? How often do I not stand is probably a better question. Yeah. 
the, the other way, way around, yeah. But by the time patients come to a hospital situation for a vein specialist, uh, there are very few people that don't require a stent. The only times you wouldn't stand is if you had um, a, a lot of thrombus in your tibial popliteal. And the way you can treat that is you put an IV in the foot and you infuse the same amount of TPA, but you use tourniquets to compress the superficial saphenous vein against the medial malleolus and the medial condyle. At the knee, so you drive all the TPA into the calf veins and you just bathe them in TPA, and you'd be surprised that you dissolve acute clot that way or open up the channels. Now, the reason that works, and it might seem counterintuitive, is that flow is proportionate to the fourth power of the, di uh, the diameter or the radius. So if you have a one millimeter radius that you increase to two millimeters or three millimeters, you're increasing the amount of flow logarithmically. Yeah. So it's all additive. So it's very important to increase these channels that may be partially recanalized or open them up to the extent you can. You don't want to angioplasty the calf veins very much. They don't respond too well to that. Mm -hmm. But you just get flow going there and uh, keep them anticoagulated. And um, it's a very gratifying procedure to open up the calf veins. I think we've written a couple chapters on that. Patricia, what is your thoughts about femoral vein angioplasty? Do you think there is a role for it? Well, yeah, I, I believe that angioplasty is very uh, indicated in a chronically occluded femoral vein that's not working very well because you can make it better but I do think that it responds much better after overnight thrombolytic therapy that softens up the thrombus. Uh, I don't think that chronic thrombus in a femoral vein responds very well to Zelante. It's sort of like uh, a waste of time to do Zelante in a chronically occluded femoral vein for a little bit of clot. You can put a, uh, you can, that's a place where you can use an ECOS machine or you can use just a multi-side hole catheter and drip thro uh, TPA overnight. It softens the clot, I guarantee you. It changes the playing field. So the clot becomes soft instead of hard. And then when you angioplasty the following day with a seven or an eight millimeter balloon that's maybe 80, 8 cm in length. You can use balloons that are the size of a normal vein, mm -hmm. seven or eight millimeters, and you can use a longer balloon. Now they even have 20 centimeter balloons. But you just, you know, gently balloon these veins and they always have a little recoil. But then if you keep the patient anticoagulated and you watch them with ultrasound you will see that the vein stays open and it will be a good conduit to support the stents you have in your iliac system and it, that's the best combination of uh, doing that but 
I don't think that people get the results I do because they're too impatient. They don't <laughs> want to coagulate their patients, and they don't want to do that pre pre uh, angioplasty lytic therapy that softens the clot. What kind of balloons are you using? The drug coating balloons, high pressure balloons in the femoral? You never, I never ever use Kevlar high pressure balloons in the femoral vein, uh, except the common femoral area. But in, below the uh, inguinal ligament and then the uh, deep femoral, let's say this, the femoral vein in the thigh from the popliteal up, I always use um, Armada balloons, Evercross balloons. Just uh, low-pressure balloons. Mm -hmm. uh, and I like the long balloons. And you can blow them up and you can watch them break the sneakyi. Uh, there will be uh, waste formation with the balloons and they will open up. And you must take care that you can actually dissect femoral vein and you can rupture a femoral vein. So using a high-pressure balloon is not indicated in the femoral vein and you don't want to dissect them because although they will recover pretty nicely in most cases, um, it's, you, have to, you can't use any more lytic therapy, of course, if you perforate. Okay. So, I mean, you have to be gentle. What about the, the common femoral vein? When you, when you have a, a chronic DVT with a lot of synechias, Is there any time when you, you think about opening it and doing an endophlebectomy? Or you uh, always stent it? Well, phlebectomy in arteries in that area has never been very successful. You know, phlebectomy, uh, I mean, endarterectomy in the femoral vein was never a good, good uh, surgery. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would never do an endophlebectomy because I don't, I actually I don't do that procedure, but I never asked anyone to do it for me because uh, we found in 1993, which is almost 30 years ago, that stenting to the upper thigh is the very best location to extend the stent and those stents stay open forever mm -hmm. when they have good inflow. So I would, I would definitely stay at the femoral vein. And if you don't, it's irregular. It's prone to rethrombosis. I don't see any reason not to stent it when we have such good stents these days. How many times did you use the deep femoral vein as the inflow? Um, once in a while, a patient will have a very good, very high, well-developed profunda Uh, collateral system from the popliteal up to the to the femoral and unfortunately uh, it will it will take over from anything you do in the femoral vein so you can open up the femoral vein and the femoral vein will probably close down again if your profunda is that that good and you can actually stent into the femoral if it's that good and it will sustain your stents for for a long for many years but most people don't have the axialization development of a profunda collateral i've seen that only a few times okay. um 
But it, 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 you have to judge each person. How much should we worry about bleeding? What, what would be the contraindications and precautions to the fibrinolytics? Bleeding where? Bleeding where? Well, everywhere, like inside the brain, inside the heteroperitoneum, small bleedings. What would be the, the precautions? Like which patient you wouldn't indicate thrombolysis? Okay, the risk factors are the same for cardiologists, arteri uh, venous and arterial, really. Uh, older patients um, with a history of hypertension, even if it, it it's just been recently diagnosed and treated, but a history of hypertension, older patients that are in their 80s, uh, anybody with diabetes, Anybody who takes steroids, testosterone or prednisone, those are all risk factors for bleeding. And the, the biggest risk factor is a diastolic hypertension. So if you have an older patient with diastolic hypertension and then they're diabetic and they take prednisone, they're at risk for a bleed. Now, that being said, it's not dose dependent. I mean, uh, 5.5 milligrams an hour can induce a bleed if they have a bad bad vessel as much as one milligram per hour. But the higher your dose, the higher the risk as well. So I never run TPA in a patient uh, more than one milligram per hour, unless it's two legs at a time, and then sometimes you run a 0.75 and 0.75, so that would be 1.5 milligrams. But those are usually young patients without risk factors. Mm -hmm. You have high, high older patients with high risk factors, then you would um, not want to increase your dose. The other risk factors that I'm thinking of right now are this: a person who's had a seizure disorder. That's a that's a red flag, and the other one is they've had a head injury in the past where they've had a concussion or contusion. Mm -hmm. Now, none of those absolutely translates to uh, bleeding in the brain. But if I had a patient who had a malignancy, I would do a CT to make sure there's no head, uh, metastatic lesion in the brain. But if you have a patient without cancer and they're 80 years old and they are diabetic with high blood pressure, Uh, you just know that they have a risk for bleeding the brain and the risk gets worse with time. So you wouldn't want to keep that patient on TPA for, you know, four days, okay. maybe just overnight. Even then there's a risk. And you just have to spell it out to the patient that there's a, the risk of being on heparin and the risk of being on Coumadin is probably more than the risk of TPA. But of course, if you're going to combine heparin and TPA, then it, it's, it, it's kind of probably even riskier. But they take a risk of being on IV heparin or uh, anticoagulation mm -hmm. just as much. TPA, unfortunately, is... Uh, If it starts bleeding, 
um, there's a risk of, of a head bleed. Now, that's the other thing, the reason why you need a team. You have to have people who are on your side watching your patient every hour, every single hour. Mm-hmm. And make sure that their mental status is good and uh, they're okay. I mean, they're not goofy and they're not slurring their speech or they're not having a headache. But, so you have to t- train your nurses to say, if you have a headache, is this like a headache you always have or is this the worst headache you've ever had? Mm-hmm. Do you feel nausea? Do you feel like throwing up? Are you, is your, are you seeing okay? Are you seeing double? All these things that indicate increased intracranial pressure are a terrible sign. And if anybody has any of that complaint, you have to turn off the TPA immediately. You have to turn off the heparin immediately. You have to take them to the CAT scan and make sure they don't have a bleed in their head. And if they do have a bleed in their head, you have to give them fresh frozen plasma and call the neurosurgeon and call the family. And for the most part, I've seen this happen probably 10 times in in 30 years. For the most part, people end up being pretty much okay after they get past all this. Uh, People usually don't die Mm -hmm. and they usually don't have a uh, permanent injury. But it's only because you stop everything very quickly and reverse everything very quickly. So, but it is a risk. Okay. And those are the risk factors. Thank you. Uh, Patricia, please tell me your thoughts about wall stents and the new 19-0 dedicated stents. Do they bring the same results? Are you using them? What do you think about? Well, I was in the Veniti trial, the Vici trial, and I put as many stents as anyone in Dr. Gagne and I did the most placements of stents in the United States. The Vici stent deploys very nicely as an open cell nitinol stent. The length of 120 is very good. So now the DeNova stent by Bard, as well as the Vici stent have a good length. Uh, the wall stent is going to be, I think, increased to a 120 millimeter stent, and the wall stent is now being uh, reappropriated for venous use. Uh, so there will be an FDA designation. My preference, of course, right now is that the wall stent is uh, has done well for 30 years, and I know patients who have had stents for that long, uh, almost that long, 27 years, who they're, they're open. The stents are open and they haven't uh, fractured. The, the trouble with the open cell nitinol stents is they're now the second and third generation of that design. The first generation of that design was the smart stent and it was total, very collapsible. And uh, probably 80% of the stents that I've seen that are occluded have been first-generation nitinol stents because they get mangled, they collapse, they compress under the inguinal uh, under the inguinal as well as under the right femoral artery, uh, right iliac artery. Pardon me. So I am not a fan of the first-generation nitinol stents. Uh, every 
person that we've had with wall stents has not had, they, they still get some intimal hyperplasia, but not nearly as much. So the new stents, people like them because they're, they're somewhat visible. Nitinol is not very visible compared to wall stents. The wall stents are much easier to see. The good thing about the wall stent that none of the other stents have is that you can reposition them. If you don't like the position, you can close it back up and bring it down a little lower, put it up a little higher. That's a tremendous advantage to placing uh, the stent. So not there's no perfect stent. Um, I think that the open cell nitinol stents have a very high percentage of fracturing the stent struts over 20 years or so. Will that make a difference? Nobody knows. Mm -hmm. uh, just the fact that there's a fracture doesn't mean that the stent doesn't work. Uh, so, so far the one-year data and the two-year data uh, for the new stents is good. You can't argue with it. Uh, the de novo stent is less expensive in the States than the wall stent, but the Vici stent is more expensive. So, uh, I still go with the wall stent. Okay. Patricia, what's your post-operative antithrombotic preference? How long do you keep the patients on antithrombotics? Well, that's a question that, that doesn't make sense, if you'll excuse me, sure. until you talk to the patient. Mm -hmm. If you have a patient who has had thrombosis three times in their life and they finally become your patient and you stent them, I think you're foolish not to keep them on long-term anticoagulation. Mm -hmm. If they've had a pulmonary embolus or they've had two or three episodes of thrombosis, uh, then if you don't have them on anticoagulation, they're, they're probably going to thrombose again. Mm -hmm. Now, you can tell them, well, if you thrombose again, you can come and see me, and I'll fix it. <laughs> But when they have a stent in, every time they thrombose the stent, you never get back to where you were. You can never get it back as good as it was, unless you see them within three, uh, one week. You see them in the first week, clean it out, then you can keep them as good as they are. So most people that I've treated with TPA or urokinase and put stents in and it took like a week for them to get it all done, they don't ever want to do that again. Mm -hmm. And they have genetic factors and their type A blood. Uh, I say your chances of rethrombosing are fairly high in the rest of your life. So if I were you, I would stay on an anticoagulant. If They've never, if they don't have any genetic risk factors and they only have a single stent and their blood flow is good without a lot of residual clot, then maybe they'll do well with Eliquis. Now, the reason I do Coumadin versus Eliquis is the amount of residual clot. I do not believe that Eliquis with only one anti-10A factor is strong enough to keep them from reclotting if they have a lot of residual clot on the femoral vein, the popliteal vein, and it's just it's just too much ten there's just too much chance for clot formation, right? Mm -hmm. 
And clearly, it's Coumadin is the best thing, but it's just a pain. Nobody likes Coumadin. It's a pain to take it. It's a pain to watch what you eat. So I'd say 50% of the personalities are good for Coumadin, 50% aren't. We have patients who are very consistent, uh, that do well on Coumadin, they have their own monitor, and it doesn't bother them at all. You have other people that eat at the different time every day, different food every day. They're, they're, they're terrible with Coumadin. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of weigh all of those factors. And if a patient's A positive or B, A negative or B negative, I would always treat them with an anticoagulant. And what we do now is we, the party line around the United States now is that we do two weeks of Lovenox, one milligram per kilogram, BID for two weeks after your procedure. You have new stent, and I'm talking about just a stent and, and an iliac, not a whole lot of thrombolytic therapy. If I treat someone with an extensive amount of clot, Fabio, mm-hmm. and I stent them, then I'm going to probably keep them on Coumadin for six months to a year and then change them to Eliquis. Mm-hmm. Because they have a lot of abnormal vein with a lot of residual irregularity that could clot again. But if you have a non-thrombotic Maytherner patient that you put a single stent in and they don't have a history of blood clots, even if they have a positive blood, then you put two weeks of lytic therapy, two weeks of Lovenox, and then six months to a year of Eliquis, and then they're probably endothelialized. And if they don't clot again, that's probably they don't need to be on anticoagulant. Mm-hmm. So you see, there's no one, you can group people into different levels of risk. And maybe it would be helpful for you if I write all that out. Because I think no one quantifies the risk factors. Mm-hmm. You can almost give somebody a score and figure out what your best uh, options are. I don't think anyone's done that yet, do you? I don't think so. I haven't read anything about yeah. it. Yeah. But I think you need to quantify the risk factors and what people don't do when they do that is they don't uh, visualize with ultrasound or otherwise the amount of old clot that's there, the amount of abnormal vein, and what the risk is for that to re-clot despite the fact you have a new stent in, which is another risk factor for a few months. Mm-hmm. So who, who doesn't get anticoagulation? Um, a person with O positive blood type that has a single stent, they've never blood, had a DVT in their life, mm-hmm. they can probably do okay without anticoagulation. Just Plavix. Okay. Patricia, what is still missing in the field? What, what do you like to, to have or see today? Well, I've been working with a company that develops a catheter for chronic DVT. And I think that a lot of... I'm waiting for you to uh, look at your data. Mm-hmm. Because I think if you just stent the iliac and you don't treat the femoral vein and you don't have good inflow, you just have a normal profunda, 
Mm-hmm. Not a tremendously enlarged one. I don't believe that you're going to have good long-term results. I think you need to in, you need to improve the flow in the femoral vein and have that be supportive of your iliac system. So I, I'm inter- interested in seeing your data, but the I think that there's a need for us to be able to go from above or from below and go through an occluded femoral vein and angioplasty that vein and anticoagulate the people and have good flow from the good flow to good flow. Mm-hmm. So let's say your popliteal is okay and then your femoral vein has had chronic clot and then your profunda comes into your femoral. I think you need to improve that femoral vein. And if you had a catheter that would go through that easily and then you could angioplasty it, 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 it should be a good conduit for you. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't want to stent it because stents will rethrow. They, they, they don't stay open in the femoral vein, less than 50%. Yeah. So I think that we're missing uh, the amount of work we need to do with the chronic thrombus. Also, chronic thrombus in the uh, chronically occluded stents are becoming a big epidemic. You get people with stents because they're put in by doctors who don't follow the patient. You know, I ultrasound my patients every six months to see if their stents are doing well, and I warn them about the signs of intimal hyperplasia so that if they start having intimal hyperplasia, we bring them back for high-pressure balloon angioplasty to push it back. So I think there's a, a need for a catheter that goes up through femoral veins. I think there's a debulking. We don't have any debulking tools for getting rid of the, the junk, the, the material that's within chronically occluded stents. Mm-hmm. It doesn't dissolve with TPA. It's a mixture of fibrosis and organized thrombus, right? Yeah. And hyperplasia. It's it's like a it's like cement sometimes, and there's no ma- machine that will go in and core that out. So I think some debulking coring machines that would go in and clean out your stents and not go through the interstices would be a good idea. And I also think that if there were balloon, uh, if there are drug-eluting balloons that puts the substance on the wall of the stent to inhibit intimal hyperplasia, that might be something for the future, but I don't think anybody's there yet. I think the drug-eluting balloons are way too expensive, way too small. They're not any good for the size balloons size veins we work on. Mm-hmm. Even in the subclavian, they're too small. Yeah. We're, we need 12 and 14 size balloons. Uh, and drug-eluting balloons that big haven't been made. And if they were made, they would be way too expensive to use. So I think people need to think out of the box about how to get rid of the stuff that comes when you're not watching, but how to prevent it from coming is probably the where the money is. If you could prevent it from happening, you're better off. What, what is your approach to chronic occluded stent? Uh, 
Well, what do you mean? What's my approach? I just go in, get them open, and then I re-stent them usually. But how often uh, do you have success crossing it? Because, you know, here in Brazil, we have had terrible time trying to, well, to pass through it. Of course, because you don't have the right equipment. And the, the Zabel cath is really helpful. The X-A-B-E-L, they're making it now. Uh-huh. And it has a metal tip on the end, and it's, it engages the material within the stent. You can push up, you get a sheath up. Once you get a sheath up, you can take a laser and go up through it mm -hmm. and be very careful at the turn up above so you don't go out the back wall. Mm -hmm. I'm asking people to make things big enough for you not to go out the back wall. The sheaths aren't strong enough, but I, I've gotten up through probably 15, uh, 15 of them. I think I've always managed to open them up, but mm. it's very difficult work. It is not done in a day. Uh, sometimes it takes more than a day. Mm -hmm. And you have to make sure that your sheath is within the stent before you start using a, a laser. Laser works pretty well to cut through that stuff. We've used the Pathway Jetstream and mm -hmm. uh, got through it too. But uh, we don't have the right tools for all that. We're trying to ask them to make bigger lasers. Mm -hmm. um, it's doable. I think that it's very difficult. And I, I always come from below. Uh, <clears throat> and sometimes I've come in from the side of the stent and then gone into the middle of the stent. So, uh, but I don't think you can come from above. It's too hard. Uh -huh. Well. But I've always opened him up. Yeah. We have tried many, many times and we could do it like 30% of the cases. I think. Well, you gave up. You What you do is you put catheter up there and uh, you can run saline or a little bit of TPA. I don't know if that makes any difference, but it's so what even saline, I think, softens it up. Mm -hmm. And if you soften it up with uh, liquid, then the next day you can push farther. And the Sable catheter is made by a company in Utah mm -hmm. and you can maybe get a hold of some because they have a metal tip and they're a braided catheter and you can push up through the stent and that's what that's for. Um, there are volcano, Phillips Volcano uh, is trying to get some more tools for chronically occluded stents. Um, it's, a, it's a problem that a lot of people ignore and don't try to work with, but I agree with you. It's one of the hardest things we we do. There's oh. no liquid. So, There's nothing. Sorry. Heat. There's. I mean, you think of what would make a difference. Would there be a liquid that would dissolve it? Not yet. I, I, Heat, the, the laser does the best thing of going through it and um, evaporating it. Yeah, I think for me, laser. Would be the the best uh, way to to go, but you know I didn't I don't have any experience with laser crossing uh, occluded stand, so I can't tell anything about it. Well, I've done it about fifth. Uh, I've probably done it at least twelve times, a dozen times, 
Uh, it's totally off-label. Uh, it works, and it's very expensive. Is it? Uh, is it? You can't put outpatient. It has it, to be done in the hospital. Is it dangerous to pass through the vein when you push the, the laser catheter to perforate the wall of the vein? Well, you'll no perforate. You'll you'll actually uh, you'll just uh, ruin it. I mean, yeah, perforate. I mean, but of course, if you don't stay within, that's why it's so important to stay within the stent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can go up to the edge of the stent and use your laser to kind of stay within the material that's occluding the stent. The trouble is when you get up to the above the internal iliac confluence, the vein turns to the center and comes anterior. So the angle of the iliac vein, uh, it goes posterior, then it turns to the center, and then comes anterior, and then it goes superior. Mm-hmm. It's a very tortuous angulation. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm working with the companies to get something that will track on the edge of the stent. As long as you're in the stent, you're okay. Okay. Well, Patricia, thank you very much for your time to to record this podcast with us. It is about... Uh, <laughs> we we have been talking for an hour and a half. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> Your students will fall asleep. Oh, they will love it, I'm sure. I'm sure. Thank you very much, Patricia. I appreciate it. You're welcome. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. Bye.